Welcome to Dan's Den Podcast. I'm excited to share this episode, and I'm grateful that you're joining me today. This episode is the first installment of a series where we talk about pain and the many layers and systems of the body that are involved when one feels pain. I work as a certified athletic trainer in a sports medicine clinic at Naval Station, Newport, Rhode Island, and the population that I serve are mostly Naval officer candidates that are going through their boot camp, in addition to active duty Navy and Marines. Just for those that aren't too familiar with the athletic training profession, there's a good chance that you've seen an AT as part of the team that responds to injuries during collegiate or professional athletic competitions. It's very common, especially uh, contact sports like football, even basketball, you'll have athletic trainers and maybe the a team physician or an orthopedist. Most of the time, athletic trainers are the first responders for these athletic injuries. Athletic training encompasses the prevention, examination, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation of acute or chronic injuries and medical conditions. Athletic training is recognized by the American Medical Association and the Department of Health and Human Services as an allied healthcare profession with the credential ATC. We're also licensed through individual states' Department of Health. So something that's addressed every day during my interactions in our clinic is the topic of pain and its many forms and presentations. While pain is a normal part of life, there are a myriad of factors that can influence and moderate a pain experience. So some of the information that I'm going to talk about today is part of the education that I provide to patients pretty regularly, along with whatever other treatment interventions we've decided on. Some of these podcast episodes are for me to continue to refine this pain neuroscience education, or PNE, into a presentation that I'll make available for the Navy trainees and active duty staff to address the common problem of pain and explain some of the current research on what pain actually is and how we can manage it more effectively. This episode is for informational and educational purposes and is not intended as medical advice. This information has been adapted from the textbook titled Pain Neuroscience Education, Teaching People About Pain by Adrian Liu and colleagues, published in 2018. Again, this topic of pain will be presented from a movement-based perspective with athletic training and physical therapy concepts as the basis, um, but we'll also find some important connections to overall health and function. The goal of this episode is just to establish a foundation to talk about pain and begin the process of improving our relationship with pain. And while we explore some of these concepts in the related science, I think that we can find a way to feel even better about ourselves and move towards healing. With my background in exercise science, physical therapy, biomechanics, psychology, I think a lot of this intersects here. And very commonly, when I work with patients or clients for musculoskeletal issues, often it'll come up that, you know, if they've had previous injuries, previous procedures, doctor visits, many times the patient will get all this education about you know, the particular body part or joint or movements that hurt. But along the way, we rarely get any education about pain and how to manage that. So many of us just reach for medications and kind of just hope for the best. So what I'm trying to unpack here is just a little understanding of what pain actually is and things that we can do to try to mitigate some of that and get back to the things that we enjoy doing. Many of us have heard the phrase, no pain, no gain, referring to the notion that in order to make gains, there's an inherent level of pain that should be expected and endured. Obviously, that statement is not based on any scientific or medical literature, and it's a general way to express the idea that progress or success 
is achieved only through a painful process. While both physical and psychological stress and resistance is a necessary thing to stimulate growth and adaptations, there are optimal levels of stress, both physical and psychological, applied over a gradual duration that lead to gains in a safe and effective manner. Pain should not be synonymous with effort, and more pain does not indicate greater gains. No pain, no gain, that's K-N-O-W, which has evolved out of the last two decades on pain neuroscience, highlighting that as we understand more about pain and its relationship to life, the more we can realize the gains and progress that we are actually seeking. So let's dive into it here. Epidemiological data from across the world shows that there's a global struggle with pain, especially chronic pain, and the World Health Organization and United Nations have recognized chronic pain as a global burden in need of significant attention. Chronic pain is often defined as pain that persists beyond the normal window of tissue healing, which is generally thought to be between three and six months. Soft tissues such as muscles, tendons, ligaments can generally heal in four to eight weeks depending on the severity and numerous other physiological factors, and we'll have a future episode discussing acute pain and injuries more specifically. Current research estimates that about 56% of people globally suffer from regular body pain on a weekly basis. In the United States, the Institute of Medicine estimates 126.1 million adults experience pain over a three-month period, with 25.3 million suffering from daily chronic pain. What's even more alarming is the fact that the chronic pain epidemic seems to be increasing. Data from early 1990s shows around one in seven people were struggling with chronic pain, and the recent data indicate that it's now closer to one in four. These are staggering numbers, and with this, the associated cost of management of chronic pain in the U.S. is estimated to be between 560 and 635 billion, with a B, annually. This is obviously a major burden on the healthcare system, contributing to higher costs for all types of medical care, increased waiting times, numerous appointments, and increased demands on healthcare professionals. Even though pain is a global epidemic, the United States has a very unique and troubling issue that many of us are aware of today, which is the opioid epidemic. Americans account for 5% of the world's population, yet consumes 80% of the opioids and 99% of the hydrocodone, brand name Vicodin, globally. Let me say that again. 5% of the world's population consumes 80% of the opioids and 99% of hydrocodone across the entire planet. That's pretty wild. The CDC reports that prescription opioids are causing three times more fatalities than heroin and cocaine combined, with 259 million prescriptions written in the U.S. in 2012. So this data is over a decade old. We know in the last few years it's only gotten worse. This is definitely a relevant topic and something that hopefully we can you know, talk a little bit about today and figure out ways to reduce some of these burdens. We know that these numbers are much higher today, seemingly still on the rise. There's evidence that many of these opioids actually increase pain over time, and the physical addiction to these substances can have drastic and terrible effects on individuals and their families. My hope is that I can share some of this information and provide some education that will empower us to tackle this massive problem together and do what we can as individuals, families, and communities to slow 
and eventually reverse these trends. The pain epidemic is taking a collective toll, and aside from the financial burden and suffering of patients, there's also a huge psychological cost to clinicians because treating people with chronic pain is very difficult and poses substantial challenges. I'll use the word clinician here as essentially any healthcare or medical professional, so that could be your physician, physical therapist, athletic trainers, occupational therapists, MDs. While there are many factors involved, a significant contribution to this clinical struggle is the lack of training and preparedness for treating chronic pain. Part of the problem is that the pain models that many clinicians follow today are outdated and the treatment options that flow out of these models are often ineffective and can lead to additional frustration on both sides for the patient and the clinician. Physical therapy, especially orthopedic physical therapy, has been traditionally rooted in a biomedical model that focuses mainly on tissues and tissue injury. Modern pain science has made significant advances in recent years, yet these old theories still prevail. The traditional biomedical model suggests that every disease process or dysfunction can be explained in terms of an underlying deviation from normal function, such as faulty biomechanics, a pathogen, or injury. The model implies that pathology and symptoms are correlated in such a way that a greater expression of symptoms in patients would indicate greater underlying pathology. The model proposes that correction of the underlying pathology with treatment for example, injection, surgery, joint manipulation, exercise, should result in elimination of the symptoms and subsequent restoration of normal function in the patient. But clinical experience and pain science research tells us otherwise. Many patients will demonstrate physical and diagnostic signs that they have recovered from injury, yet they will continue to report symptoms of pain. Conversely, it has been well documented that many healthy and asymptomatic people in patients often have significant tissue pathology, such as age-related changes to the spine, tissue degeneration, bulging discs, yet experience little to no pain. The biopsychosocial model encompasses more than just the biological factors like anatomy, physiology, and biomechanics in human functioning. By addressing the psychological aspects, thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, and social factors like work, culture, and religion, which are known to play a significant role in the patient's pain experience. A true biopsychosocial model includes a greater understanding of how the nervous system processes injury, disease, pain, threat, and emotions. So let's talk a little bit about cognition and pain. There's significant debate about what constitutes a true biopsychosocial approach, and it could be argued that the list would vary depending on each patient in his or her specific clinical presentations. At the heart of a true biopsychosocial approach is cognition. What a patient thinks, feels, and believes about his or her condition will significantly impact their examination, treatment, and their prognosis. I certainly acknowledge that if and when serious debilitating psychological issues such as depression, abuse, and various other psychological disorders are noted in our examination, these individuals need referral to a professional for psychological counseling. However, clinicians need to reassess their role in helping these severely affected patients and not simply and automatically default to a for-referral-only approach. Consider the following scenarios. A patient presents with pain and disability. After a skilled subjective and objective examination, 
The physical therapist determines that there's a soft tissue problem, such as a trigger point, which may be preventing optimal function and movement. Physical treatment of the trigger point via ischemic compression or mechanical disruption via use of dry needling may be considered an appropriate method to restore normal movement and function. In another scenario, patient presents with pain and disability. After our skilled subjective and objective examination, the PT determines that the main reason for their limited function and immobility is altered or inappropriate beliefs about their pain, such as fear avoidance behavior. What are the clinical guidelines to cover such a presentation, and whose job is it to treat their altered beliefs? As paraphrased from an article by Gatchel and colleagues published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, February 2016, fear avoidance is a psychiatric model first introduced by Lethem and colleagues in 1983. This model of exaggerated pain perception proposes that an individual will undergo one of two different pathways following an injury. They will either confront the pain, stay active, show a desire to return to work, etc., or avoid pain, resulting in fear avoidance, exaggerated pain perception, and eventual physical deconditioning and disability, which in turn can lower the threshold at which per a person will experience pain. The fear of pain and avoidance behaviors could become desynchronized from the actual sensory component of pain. If one interprets the experience of pain associated with or without actual tissue injury, as significantly threatening and begins to catastrophize about it, then pain-related fear evolves. Negative, catastrophic cognitions lead to avoidance of activities and hypervigilance in monitoring bodily and pain sensations, followed by withdrawal from recreation and family activities, which can lead to depression, physical disuse, deconditioning, and disability. The formation of these self-imposed barriers to physical activity leads to a negative feedback loop, which further compounds the cyclical nature of physical decline. For those that interpret and appraise the pain as non-threatening and who do not catastrophize, pain-related fear avoidance does not develop and normalization of daily activities and rapid recovery are likely to occur. A wide review of research indicates that fear of movement and re-injury may be a better predictor of physical functional limitations than actual biomedical or underlying pathophysiological variables. There's also strong evidence that pain-related fear is more associated with perceived disability and reduced behavioral performance than with pain itself. I see this often in my clinic, and many times a person's beliefs about pain or their condition play a major role in their overall function and even during that initial examination. All of this suggests that clinicians working on restoring human movement should address these altered cognitions in order for patients to feel, move, and function better. Additionally, the notion that physical and psychological issues are separate and somewhat unrelated issues represents a major flaw in medicine. Treatment interactions can alter faulty cognitions. Education is therapy. Education is medicine. While this may seem informal and benign, decades of research has shown its powerful impact on pain and disability. A major theme of these episodes, which follows about 20 years of scientific and clinical research on pain neuroscience education, is the concept of altering patients' beliefs to alter their pain experiences. It's widely accepted now that evidence-based medicine involves the best of the available scientific research 
and the clinical experience of the clinician, but also, importantly and powerfully, patient expectations and beliefs. Qualitative studies and sound clinical reasoning and experience show that patients want answers to the following questions. 1. What is wrong with me? 2. How long will it take? 3. What can I, the patient, do for it? 4. What can you, the clinician, do for it? And 5. A United States-specific question, how much will it cost? These questions are fairly straightforward with acute, subacute, or pain resulting from a procedure or operation. For people with chronic pain, the question should likely be modified. What is wrong with me should be, why do I hurt or why do I still hurt? How long will it take should be, is there any hope? Can this get any better? Two particular cognitions have been powerfully linked to poor outcomes and are a major focus in PNE. Fear and fear avoidance and catastrophization, especially pain catastrophization. These cognitions should not only be assessed at the time of the initial consultation, but addressed by the clinician before and while engaging in a movement-based approach of therapeutic exercise, manual therapy, pacing, and graded exposure. Let's talk about fear and fear avoidance. Fear is best defined as a distressing negative experience induced by a perceived threat. Fear and its impact on pain have been discussed extensively. Yet many clinicians don't readily understand the debilitating effect of fear on movement and recovery. In the now famous quote by the late Dr. Gordon Waddell, quote, the fear of pain is worse than pain itself, unquote. Fear within the chronic pain population is often associated with the belief that increased activity, movement, or exercise will not only increase pain, but further damage tissues. Patients with pain deal with the unknown, including diagnosis, how long the injury will take to heal, how long before they return to function, how the pain may or may not influence their return to employment, financial well-being, etc. The clinical manifestation of these unknowns may present itself as increased fear. So along with the word pain, we can introduce the word threat. Injury and pain are not synonymous. Pain is an output of the brain based on the brain's evaluation of perceived threat. This will be a recurring theme as we continue to dig deeper into the pain experience. Although injury may initiate the pain, many people develop chronic pain in the absence of injury. Emotional issues related to work, family, and life may have those issues as the initiation of their pain. Diseases or health of a person's tissues, even their perception of the health of their tissues, should be added as initiating events. Threats may also include provocative medical terms or information, or maybe misinformation, which may trigger a pain experience. It has been suggested that the term injury in the fear avoidance model be replaced with the term threat to account for the various known and even unknown stressors that the brain has to analyze in the development of a pain experience. Early decision. A person's experience and subsequent response to a threat, such as injury, disease, or even emotional overload, some people may endure seemingly similar injuries, yet some develop no lasting pain, while others start a life of persistent pain. There are likely many factors that impact this development of pain, including genetics, environmental issues, social, cultural issues, peer pressure, upbringing, coping skills, anxiety, and even just knowledge of their own body and what's actually going on. Therefore, it's clear that several factors will influence the development Early intervention, especially education, may have a significant impact on whether an individual moves toward a successful recovery 
or begins a cycle of fear avoidance. It's important to realize that a pain experience is normal, and this calls into question the premise of interventions aiming to prevent pain. Based on the fear avoidance model and neuroscience, pain is normal and serves a biological function in the acute stage, but what we do about it may be far more important. Can we really prevent pain? If we could prevent pain, should we? We can agree that we should aim to prevent disability or even chronic pain. Knowledge. It is widely known that chronic pain is more prevalent in patients with lower educational levels. Conversely, it has been shown that healthcare providers who experience a similar injury to non-medically trained persons will report significantly less pain and disability. Knowledge in this case may be seen as alleviating any possible fears such that events may be confronted head-on with an expectation that recovery will follow. Medical Threats Patients in pain invariably attend medical appointments, undergo tests, and experience a variety of healthcare providers. During this journey, threatening and provocative terminology is likely to induce some level of fear and uncertainty and thereby increase the pain experience. Listen to some of these descriptions from doctors and you kind of leave there either too overwhelmed to ask questions or maybe we just don't want to seem like we don't really know what's going on. But I've definitely had some appointments where the description of some of these conditions or test results or blood work leave you kind of guessing and maybe in worse shape than when you showed up. So that's what we're talking about in the case of um, some of these provocative terminologies. Pain and knowledge are intricately intertwined. In the same way that having appropriate knowledge may help to reduce levels of fear and allow an individual to confront and deal with the situation, limited or incorrect knowledge can have a powerful and negative effect on the pain experience. Irrational thoughts. With limited or incorrect knowledge, poor decisions are likely to be made. This limited information may lead to an inability to foresee anything other than the worst possible outcome. It's now well established that in increased pain catastrophization, cup half empty, results in an anti-opioid and anti-cannabinoid action which decreases endogenous mechanisms, which ultimately increases a pain experience. Endogenous just means internal or the, the body's own process. An example of this, and maybe some of you know um, a similar scenario, we know someone recently who had a hip replacement and within the first two weeks of the procedure was not doing prescribed home exercises. The individual would say that they don't do exercises due to pain and discomfort and that they would lay in bed until the pain goes away, but the pain doesn't go away. So even right there, we can see the beginning of the initial stages of this pain cycle. But this isn't necessarily the individual's fault, is that they think they're doing the right thing by waiting for the pain to go away. Physical therapy, movement, pain itself, and the connection between movement and quality of life, and then overcoming this pain. With persistent pain and limited help, patients may start a social withdrawal process. This process can further reinforce the notion of how badly they are affected and can propel the pain experience into a downward spiral. Additionally, separate from pain, loneliness and social isolation have been correlated with an increased risk for various serious illnesses, including stroke, coronary heart disease, and other even musculoskeletal issues. Pain is closely linked to perceived threat. Pain is an output of the brain based on perception of threat. The path to recovery includes various additional patient attributes which may powerfully drive them toward recovery, including priorities, goals, optimism, 
and positive affect. Pain catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is defined as the inability to foresee anything other than the worst possible outcome, however unlikely, or experiencing a situation as unbearable or impossible when it is just uncomfortable. As with fear, clinicians should train themselves to listen and identify catastrophizing phrases, such as, I'm just worried that it will get worse, I'm worried that the pain will increase, now that I have a bulging disc. All of these things, this externalizes the locus of control and further justifies that an individual has little to no control over their experience. Sometimes I see an individual identify with their injury or pain as if it's a permanent part of them and express the notion that, well, this is just life now and have begun the process of counting themselves out. Beliefs. Apart from fear and pain catastrophization, other maladaptive beliefs may need to change to allow for normal movement, exercise, and function, and participation in rehabilitation. Impaired beliefs include the belief that pain is always bad, belief that all pain must be gone before engaging in normal activity, movement, and therapy, the belief that passive treatment is the answer, belief that pain will increase with any and all activity, belief that work or occupation is potentially harmful. Several other impaired psychosocial issues have been found to correlate to pain, development of chronic pain, increased health care expenses, and decreased compliance with treatment. These issues have been referred to as yellow flags. According to Lou and colleagues, lower back pain is the most widely reported musculoskeletal disorder in Western civilization and estimated to be second only to the common cold in reasons for seeking medical care. Epidemiological data indicates that about 80% of people will develop low back pain in their life. What's very remarkable is that low back pain is currently as prevalent now as it was 100 years ago and most likely will be the same 50 years from now. What has increased, however, is disability due to low back pain. Some more alarming data, 10% of patients with low back pain account for nearly 90% of the cost. Identifying yellow flags can help to identify individuals that may require more PNE as an adjunct to some of their therapeutic treatment. Additional psychosocial yellow flags, behaviors such as extended rest, withdrawal from social, daily life, compliance issues with therapy, reports of extremely high intensity of pain, such as 15 on a scale of 0 to 10. Compensation issues, such as a lack of financial incentive to return to work. That's kind of speaking to the, the lack of the incentive to even try to get better to go back. Diagnosis and treatment issues, such as the health professional sanctioning disability. Conflicting diagnoses. Diagnostic language leading to catastrophization and fear. Lack of satisfaction with treatment. Some work issues such as history of manual work, job dissatisfaction, problems of peers and supervisors, low educational background, high physical demand or shift work, especially night work. Emotional issues such as fear of increased pain with activity, work, or therapy, depression, anxiety, irritability, and even family issues. This is kind of make people internalize it and feel like they're being a burden on those when we should be asking them for help or more support in certain cases. So returning to the patient, 
The patient believes that there is a significant danger in moving or participating in therapy because of these various issues that we have discussed. It might be even more accurate to suggest that the brain believes it is dangerous based on all available information about a bulging disc or other diagnosis. When considering potential intervention strategies, it's imperative to consider how to change a patient's knowledge and understanding about the pain problem before a movement-based program can be successful. Repeat this again as we wrap up here. Pain is a multiple system output activated by the brain based on perceived threat. So some key points here. Current models of evaluation and treatment are insufficient to deal with some of this stuff. Cognitions impact pain. Chronic pain affects cognitions, beliefs, emotions, and behaviors. Changing cognitions must occur to allow movement-based approaches to be effective. Therapy should address faulty cognitions. So we're going to wrap this episode up here. We just covered a few of the bases here, and at least we have a better understanding of some of the language and some of the ideas around this pain experience. And we're going to get more in-depth as we move forward here, but this is just our foundational first step. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dan's Den. Don't forget to follow and rate this show. If you know anybody that's ever been in pain and good luck trying to find somebody that hasn't, share this episode with them, man. We're trying to get some more information out and, you know, try to make some good changes here. Thanks again for listening to Dan's Den, and we'll see you next time.